0: I V M Hello and welcome, this is Govindra Jaitiraj presenting to you the latest segment of Business.next on Bloomberg Quint. I'm delighted to be joined by Hap Klopp, the ex-president and founder of North Face, a brand that needs no introduction in most if not all parts of the world. It's always interesting to find out what drove the brand, the creation of brands like this and products which formed an integral part of lives, but also came at a time when these demands were not felt, nor created, nor really existed. Hap, thank you very much for speaking with us today.
1: Thank you. I'm pleased to be on this.
0: Hap, so let's go back to the 60s and the mid-60s. You actually bought the company North Face, which was actually a small retail store or two retail stores And you saw something that perhaps even the founders of the company at that time did not. So walk us through what was in your mind at that time. What did you see? What did you spot? And what did you think you could make of it when you started off on this journey?
1: Thank you. The the thing which I saw, which was quite different, was uh, what was originally... Uh, the camping industry was in position to be disrupted. And I always liked disruption in the things I've been involved in, and subsequently I've been involved in things which are disrupting. But what I saw was uh, some social trends that were intersecting with some product trends. The social trends were that people were dropping out of cities and wanted to get into uh, rural areas partly because of all the, uh, the anti-war movement that existed in the cities, partly because the negative in urban congestion. And I read a lot by Thoreau and also by other people about how in wilderness is a preservation of the earth. And uh, being in Berkeley, California, where we thought we were going to change the world, uh, one of the things was to get people back to the earth. So as a result of that, I was looking for an opportunity to be able to be associated with that general market. What I realized was that people were not going very far into the wilderness because things were too heavy. So I conceptualized the idea that if you could lighten the load of what people carried to go into the wilderness, then you would be able to facilitate them moving much further. And so what I looked for was disruptive materials that would allow us to accomplish that. And what I found is that there were products that were excess military products at that time. There was aircraft aluminum, which we turned into tent poles and pack frames. There was parachute cloth, which we made into sleeping bags. We made it into tent tops and into some very funky clothing and in doing that, we lightened the load that people carried by about 50%, and people suddenly started going miles into the wilderness, not hundreds of feet, and also women joined the activity because it was no longer a beast of burden act, and as a result of that, we created what started out to be something which was uh, later called backpacking. Now, The stores I bought were ones that were into skiing. They had a very good – they had the name, The North Face, which I thought was wonderful. And it provided us some short-term cash flow uh, because we sold not only our own products, which we made, but other products because we didn't know how long it was going to take for people to understand the concept of what we're doing because a product adoption cycle always is unpredictable. So what we said is we have to have money to go to the store every day so we would use the stores to be able to get there. Now, interestingly, in terms of disruption, uh, we were one of the first companies that were in consumer goods to have both wholesale sales and our own retail stores, now called omni-channel. So from the very get-go, what we did is we had a catalog, we had stores, and we had wholesale sales of these novel products.
0: Right. So let me go back to the material. How did you chance upon the fact that you could actually get, get material or use material that were really being used by the armed forces at that time, and that would be the material that would actually help you?
1: Well, it was a combination of things. First of all, I was from Spokane, Washington, uh, where I grew up, and what you did in your spare time was go to the outdoors, so I had a pretty good sense of what good product was and what bad product was. Uh, That coupled with the fact that I then went to university at Stanford, and many of the people that I worked with at Stanford were involved in research for the military. So in talking with them, and frankly, it wasn't serious talk. It was more over beers at the the local pub while we were working. uh, We talked about, you know, what could these things be used for? And I keep saying, you know, we don't need this military effort, but, you know, we have a great industrial complex there. How can we convert these things over? And somewhere, one of those days, the ideas popped up of uh, here were these materials and the fact that they'd been produced in such quantity made them now commercially viable in terms of price.
0: Right. And and tell us about some of the initial challenges. I mean, you did mention that there was time. It did take time for the product to acquire some sort of acceptance and reach. But tell us about the early days.
1: Well, the early days was, uh, were one where I believed you should have the best people And if with the best people in your team, you'd be able to make the best company over a long term. I I had had a problem with that in that many of the best people that I found had no business training. And so what I concluded was that we needed to do about three things. We needed to bring in the best team. Then I needed to train them about business. I had a Stanford MBA. I had run a family company for a number of years uh, while I was in school. Uh, it was not a large company, but it was doing about $25 million in sales, doing wood products and windows. So with my background, I thought I could train people, and Berkeley was a place that was attracting a lot of people who were interested in either the out-of-doors or dropping out or interested in uh, design and film and whatever. So I brought that team together, and then my second thing was, what is this going to be all about? And I believed it was about building a brand that was endurable. And a brand to me was never a logo or is never a tagline. It was was the DNA of the company. So if you could find the DNA of the company, then everybody consistently and persistently would act in the same way. And that is how you build a brand because a brand is like coral. It grows very slowly. You don't see it while it's growing, but uh, you reach a certain critical mass at which point it's – obvious to everybody how elegant it is, and frankly, it is so unique that it is a monopoly in and of itself. So I set about building a brand, and I did it very simply, uh, which is something I've done before and have done since, and that is to try to define the three words that would be quintessentially the North Face, three words that everybody in the company would use as a guideline for how they operate it. Those three words that I uh, found and that we used were, one, disruption, two, quality, and three, triple bottom line. Now I'll explain that a little bit. Disruption, I've already explained, but that was we utilized best materials all the time. We started out with materials from the government from the Vietnam War. We then uh, were the first to utilize Gore-Tex when it came out, which allowed us to create novel products for the ski industry. And then when our tent sales slowed down, I went to a philosopher genius I knew by the name of Buckminster Fuller, uh, who had instituted the idea of geodesic domes and structures, and I said, Bucky, you say that geodesic domes encompass the maximum amount of space with the minimum amount of materials. That sounds like a backpacking tent. He said, oh, it very well could be. I said, well, would you design one for us? And he said, well, unfortunately, I'm – Changing the world, so I don't have much time to design myself. <laughs> but if you put a team together, I'll mentor that team. And we did. We had lots of people in Berkeley who were who loved Bucky and had followed him, so they loved the opportunity of working with him. We worked with him. We created Jedis Tent and we revolutionized it. But it wasn't only in product that we were disrupting. Our employees uh, were all stock owners in our company. We were one of the first companies to allow everybody to do that. As I mentioned, we were omni-channel from the first day that we introduced the product. We had idiosyncratic ideas that I developed over my uh, time at school that uh, I tried to bring into the company that led to some of the other things. Now, quality, I believed – in a product that lasted forever. I did not like the idea of planned obsolescence, and that was something that was unique at that time in the marketplace. To underscore that, what we did is we put a lifetime warranty on all of our products, and with that lifetime warranty, uh, we then would story tell so everybody would hear about it because that's that's how you build a brand. It's not how much you spend on advertising, but it's how much uh, people are talking about you and how consistently they're saying what you're going to do. So we created a product that lasted for a lifetime. Now, one of the uh, things we found was a story within the company that got told and retold about the lengths we went to be able to support the customer. And that was one time somebody came into our warranty department, and Aisha, who ran it, uh, spoke with them. uh, Anybody in my company had the authority to make decisions, particularly with respect to warranty, because... I felt the faster you could solve a customer's problem, the happier they were going to be. And frankly, if it took months to solve something, there's nothing you could do to make the people happy. So anyway, on this day, people came in, and they said, we have a bit of a problem, and that is we planned all year for our camping trip, and our tent has failed. We now can't go on the trip. It's going to ruin our whole vacation plans. And she said, no problem. We can solve that for you. We have plenty of capacity, and these. Uh, the customer said, well, there's one small problem, and it is that this product is not your product. It's your competitor's product. <laughs> and she said, well, that's okay. We we can uh, fix it. They make great products. We know how to fix it. We'll do that. They said, well, how much it's going to cost us? And her response was, we don't charge people for repairs. Now, they may have been scamming us, but the reality is a story uh, was spread large and wide – by our employees, and it was a way to consistently build the brand.
0: Would you still? Would North Face still do that?
1: Uh, North Face does that. They've modified it a little bit with respect to some products. And, and and maybe I should step back here. We didn't say it at the outset. I no longer uh, run the company. Yes, and I do not, not have mm. any longer. Uh, the company is now owned by the VF Corporation. Mm. It has grown much larger than what I had when I sold it. It is about two and a half billion in sales turnover in U.S. dollars. Uh, and, but they, they operate a very good, very sound company, and I speak with them on a regular basis, but I'm no longer directly involved in it. Triple bottom line is a place where a company has a focus, an equal focus on three things. One is profits, a second one is environment, and the third one is society. And quickly, I'll tell you some of the things we did there and, again, the stories that go with it. The first one in terms of profits, as I mentioned, none of the management of our company had any business background. Uh, So we had to do training. Uh, they, they knew how to make product or they knew how to, to be in the out of doors or they knew how to uh, do a variety of things. They just needed to have business principles. So we used that as part of our training. I trained them. I brought in people from universities and whatever. And it must have been okay because besides making the North Face successful, we ended up that 11 of the people who worked with me at the outset ended up running other outdoor or apparel companies around the world. Now, in terms of environment, uh, one of the first things was having a lifelong product. If a product lasted forever, I always felt it was environmentally more responsible even than using recycled materials. And, of course, across the company, we always assessed our practices. Were we doing the proper thing from an environment standpoint? And even when we sponsored expeditions, we would look at environment. For example, uh, we had the first expedition to go to the top of Mount Everest that actually brought back more trash than it took up there. If you've ever been to Kathmandu, around there what you see is a lot of oxygen bottles and things from, from prior expeditions that are just left there because there was no incentive to bring it back. Uh, so – Our entire story was always about the environment because at its deepest, what we felt was we wanted to take people to the out-of-doors. It expanded initially from backpacking to skiing. From skiing, it went into other allied sport activities. But we believe that there's uh, a real joy when people go outside. In terms of things of social, uh, probably one of the biggest things we did is we were the first company uh, to be able to work on AIDS awareness – uh, when the uh, crisis first hit, there was a lot of people that would not address it because they thought it was a homosexual disease. The, uh, it wasn't. It isn't. We thought we as a company had a responsibility to educate people. Uh, we did, and the fact that we're such a macho company probably called attention to it. So people realized that we were we had a social commitment that we were doing. We spoke 14 languages at all times in our factory, so we could always hire the best people. Uh, we didn't care uh, about whether somebody were lesbian, gay, transgender. We just hired the best people, and it allowed us to create a community around that. So we always believed in Triple Bottom Line, the way we ran our business. And we put all those together, and that became the essence of the brand, which now – People may just see the logo on jackets because the majority of sales are in jackets, but there is a warm, fuzzy feeling about the company, and it comes from building a brand and building a brand consistently and persistently applied.
0: So, if we were to go back to the early 70s now, you know, so after you took over the first store and then you started growing, tell us a little bit about, you know, the initial, uh, the distribution strategy that you used and how did you, you know, grow and at some point, obviously, the growth must have compounded. So, if you could walk us through that phase too.
1: Sure. There, there were three or four elements to it. The first one is that we took over some stores, but we immediately added one store in Berkeley where the half, front half of the store was selling the back half was actually our manufacturing facility so when you went into the store you could see us manufacturing the product Uh, it gave a great cachet. but in addition to that we had a direct interaction with our customers and i think that was very beneficial in terms of getting feedback and input uh, to be able to develop it what we believed was Uh, we were selling a psychographic as opposed to a demographic. And that psychographic was about people who cared about the wilderness, cared about moving out there. And we knew with that psychographic that those people were scattered all around the globe, all around the United States for sure. So from the first day, we believe what we needed to do was sell products to a wide range of people through various uh, other retail stores besides our own. So we tried in our catalog but catalogs weren't nearly as effective as online presently is, but that was one way to reach out. We then set up a a division of sales where we went and contacted sport retailers all across the United States and the, a lot of them looked at us rather curiously because our product cost probably triple what anybody else's cost at that time. Uh, but we, we set about selling that. And because we had our own stores generating cash, we were able to uh, wait while those customers started picking up on what we were doing. Now, our growth was exponential, but that always happens with an early stage company because you start with such a numerically low base. Uh, but the challenges then became that we were growing about a hundred percent a year and 100% a hundred percent of year even from a low base compounds very dramatically and of course that gets into capital needs that you have traditionally in the sport and apparel business you can only grow about 20 percent on internally generated funds and you have to rely on banks or bringing in additional equity into the company growing at a hundred percent a year we were testing that on a regular basis so one of the big challenges was constantly figuring clever ways to refinance the company to be able to expand some in equity some in debt but that, that was one of our biggest challenges The the second challenge that we had was trying to build a factory that would scale that way. Initially, all of the production was done in our own facilities. So we went from the back of the store to about a 5,000-square-foot facility, then to a 25,000-square-foot facility, and we were constantly moving, setting up. And, And in all reality, we weren't great at teaching people how to sew a product so we had to bring in experts uh, that were good in sewing a product. Also, what we knew was our product line, which was initially very outdoor-oriented, was very seasonal, and we, uh, so we had a challenge there. When you have a, a product that lasts for a lifetime, you have a, an interesting challenge, and that is there aren't many reasons for people to come back to you if they've already bought a sleeping bag, already bought a tent. However, if they bought clothing, it solved two of our problems. The first one was, it was counter seasonal. We were selling summer jackets and outerwears obviously fall and so we're able to balance that out. The second one is people oftentimes have more than one jacket, maybe they have three, four for different conditions so we could bring those happy customers back to us. So we were pushed into producing different products at the same time which was manufacturing much more complex but hidden in that problem was also the great opportunity that exists right now, which was clothing, where, particularly outerwear, where people would buy again and again and again.
0: Right. And, and what would, in your mind, be the most significant challenge you faced, particularly in the early years?
1: Well, Besides financing, because of the rapid growth we had, the, the biggest challenge that we had was making sure that everybody was operating in the same way so that we didn't have people um, moving at counterpoints to one another. I talked about building a brand, but in fact, it's how you run your company. So every two years, we would bring in all of the team and we would talk about the direction of the company. We would set quantitative goals, we would set qualitative goals, and frankly, we use that as an education basis too, uh, so we would bring in people to talk about marketing and economy and direction and sewing and new breakthroughs in terms of technologies, and we use that for that education. It took time. It was costly to do, and frankly, for some of the people who've been there from day one, it, it was probably not as energizing as it was to the new people coming in. But when you bring new people into the company, you have to clearly explain to them why we do what we do. And at the end of those meetings, I would say the same thing. It was every two years, but I would—it was very novel to the new people, old to the old people. But I would say, I hope we are so clear with what we've decided here, that some of you leave the company. And I say that not because you aren't great people, because we wouldn't have hired you if you weren't great people. But you may have different ideas than what we want. We can only operate with one culture and one direction. If you have different ideas, those ideas are not going to be reconsidered for two more years. So if you if you can't wait, then we'll help you find another company that embraces those ideas, because we have to operate consistently and directly
0: right and and uh, i'm assuming that in the latter years you saw the uh, saw the, the arrival of many new brands uh, the patagonia obviously is the big one but many other outdoor yes. brands so how did you respond to that and even at the time that you were uh, exiting the company what was north face's outlook towards competition
1: well uh, There's two ways of of dealing with something. There was an article in in the Harvard Business Review who talked about Mm -hmm. the pie slicers and the pie enlargers. Uh, It's not very academic the way it was saying, but it was a great article. Uh, Pie slicers are sort of Malthusian in their thinking. They believe that the the market is finite and everybody fights for their own shares. We believed in the pie enlarging, which was if we created something which was new, there would be a larger market and everybody could share. We would all thrive that way. And towards that end, what I did was find a quote from uh, Rudyard Kipling. It was in the Mary Gloucester. And I got that, had it done in calligraphy and put it on the wall of our design department. And And the quote went something like this. They copied all they could copy, but they couldn't copy our minds. And we left them sweating and stealing a year and a half behind. <laughs> Our belief was rather than put money into lawyers to try and fight patents or rather putting money into uh, trying to overwhelm the customer, what we would do was embrace change, embrace novelty, spend money on design to be innovative in such a way that we would expand the market into a variety of areas. And that's one of the reasons that we brought in the Gore-Tex material because it created a function that had not existed in the marketplace before it created something that was both waterproof and breathable. And it allowed us to create an entire new range of products that we had.
0: Right. Uh, We're running to the end of this segment, Hap. So one last and quick question. So Hap, you sold out in 1989 when things were going well, the business was growing, the brand was prominent, and indeed it had acquired a substantial international and global presence. So why did you do that?
1: Uh, Frankly speaking, uh, we had the wrong business model. Uh, that business model was we were growing way too fast. I set a culture up of us growing way too fast, and the only role that I was playing or the primary role I was playing half the year was an uh, investment banker for my own company. I got into the business because I loved the outdoors. I loved creating product. I loved innovation. I loved uh, educating people on growth and whatever, uh, but we were growing so much that the demands of my time resulted in me constantly refinancing the company, bringing in new investors, working with the banks all the time. And that was not what I enjoyed. And uh, as one of my board members once said to me, he said, you know, Hap, uh, you said when it wasn't fun anymore, you were going to leave. He said, it doesn't look like you're having fun doing it. And I said, you know, Clyde, you're right. Uh, maybe I'll just go ski.
0: Hap Klopp, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Don't forget to tune in on BloombergQuint.com or IBM podcast app for the latest edition of Business.Next podcast every week. Hi, my name is Anupam Gupta. I'm B50 on Twitter. I am the host of PezaVesa, a show that talks money. On my show, I speak to experts from every field of money and finance, from stock markets, equities, debt funds, credit cards, life insurance, every possible area of money and finance that you can think of. We even did an episode on cryptocurrency. I've got fantastic guests from mutual funds to personal finance experts everywhere, robo advisory startups, just name it, we've got it. At Pesa Pesa we help you make smart decisions about money. You work hard for money. Now make your money work hard for you. New episodes out every Monday and you can listen to my show on the IVM podcast app or any other podcasting app that you have.
2: Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai, instead of being left at the Tower of Silence after they die, are now cremated? And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal but three? One of them was seen but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Varma, and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind, but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The scene and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer.